may be seated. One of the things we talked about during this Reformation series is the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation involved uh, a young Martin Luther being in serious doubt about his own sin. And, and would he truly be with Christ when he died? Was he really saved? And so he had abnormally long confessions because he wanted to work through that the, the doubts. And these are the kinds of things that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Now, we also have doubts sometimes that we are saved. I'd love you to turn to 1 John chapter 3, and I want to show you that this is something that happens to any Christian. We can have doubts that we, whether we truly have eternal life. So turn to 1 John chapter 3 with me. We're going to start out there. And we're looking at chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. If you went to the Gospel of John, you got the wrong one. you got to keep going. It's, it's before Revelation. <clears throat> this is 1 John, chapter 3, verse 18. And, and whenever you read the book of 1 John, which I encourage you to do, especially if this sermon really uh, touches something in your heart, you got to read the whole thing. I'm going to be jumping around in 1 John this morning, different places, looking at different verses. But uh, 1 John is a, a letter about assurance. Like, how can you know for sure that you have eternal life? How can you be confident of that? Now, here's what he says in chapter 3, 18. Little children. And you're going to see this throughout the book of 1 John. He loves calling his readers Little children. And you get this really tender, pastoral approach to this congregation. I love how tender it is. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him whenever our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. So, Verse 20 says, you know, sometimes, even in a Christian's life, your heart will condemn you. Like like you know Jesus paid for salvation, you believe it, and yet you wonder, do I really have that eternal life? Am I really a Christian? When I die, will, will will I see Jesus and be with Him? Like sometimes we doubt our salvation. Well, my question is why? Well, what are some... In other words, I could talk about some of the reasons maybe John's audience would doubt their salvation, but what are some reasons we don't have confidence, assurance of our salvation? I know what Martin Luther was struggling with. What, what do we deal with? And, and I read a whole bunch of things on this, like trying to, trying to see different perspectives, like why do people struggle? And I tried to boil them down into three categories. There's, I'm sure there's more, and you've got your own. But I think these might get at a little bit of like, why do we doubt it? That we're really saved. Why do we struggle so much with this? Well, A, let's look at this one. Uh, some of you are not sure about the moment that you got saved. Like, like maybe you grew up in a church, and I heard this uh, at times from Christians. 
Like, you need to know the hour and the day that you believed. And and, and I really do admire, I, I really do like it, you know, when people, like, write in their Bible their spiritual birthday. Like, that's awesome. I love that. Like, celebrate your spiritual birthday. That's great. But if you don't know the day, that's okay. Like, you don't have to know the exact moment. You don't have to have that written down in your Bible. I think it's great if you do, but if you don't, that's okay because I don't read in the Bible that you've got to remember the moment. It just says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I don't have to know that it was on January whatever. It's just, I believe. Another doubt that comes with this first one is, you go back to A, I have one more part of this A. Um, You're not sure about the moment you got saved. The other part of this is, Sometimes you wonder, did I do it right the first time? You know what I mean? Like this is like the this is like the uh, the Christian camp experience when all the kids raise their hands to receive Christ just to make sure they did it right. Some of you have received Christ a number of times, right? But did you really receive him a number of times, or were you just doing that to make sure that you got it right the first time? Did you pray the sinner's prayer the right way? Or did you forget some words? Did you do it the way the pastor had you do it? Or did your Sunday school get it right the first time? You know what I mean? And, and, and it's not about the sinner's prayer. It's not a magical prayer. The Bible never says, pray this prayer and you will be saved. The reason that I pray a prayer at the end of sermons, uh, every Sunday almost, is just because I want to help people give words to their faith. I'm just trying to give words to it. Like, what do I say to God? And so you'll notice when I pray, I don't use the same words every Sunday, but but the basic elements of faith are always in those prayers that I pray. Christ died for my sins. He rose from the dead. It's that. So it's not this mechanical, procedural, I got it right, I said the right words, I know I'm in. And kids, I would say that to you especially. You don't have to worry if you did it the right way. My question if you, if I was talking to you, kids that are here this morning, I would just say, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And if you say, yes, I believe that, then it's like, well, then, yeah, you're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. You're forgiven. You didn't have to pray the prayer. You just you just believe it. So that's a problem. Uh, B, here's another problem. Sometimes, and I think this is definitely an adult thing. I think I think kids can deal with this too, though. Teenagers can deal with this. You know, you're struggling with sin. And you see the sin in your life and you're kind of like Paul in Romans and you're like, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, I don't, I don't do them, you know. So what's going on with me? And you struggle with sin and you're like, how can I know that I'm saved if I keep going back to this stuff over and over and over again? Like, I feel like I'm kind of like a slave to sin, but the Bible tells me I'm not a slave to sin anymore. So you, So the presence of sin makes you doubt. Maybe God hasn't changed me. How about C? Here's the last one I've got for you. Uh, your suffering makes you feel like God is against you or He's absent. When you're going through the darkness, we've sang about this this morning, you know, when darkness seems to hide your face. There is a suffering that makes God feel distant. and That can cause us to doubt our salvation. Because he doesn't feel close to me. I don't, I don't see him like I did at one point. But beyond all of that, 
I can look at 1 John 3, 18-20 that we just read, and I love this, verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we reassure our heart before Him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. So God is greater than my heart. When my heart condemns me, God does not. Because He saved me by the blood of Christ. That God is bigger than those negative feelings that I have. He's bigger than our hearts. He knows everything. So I don't have to doubt. God doesn't want me to doubt that I am truly saved. Even though, clearly Scripture says, I'm going to have times where I doubt it. I don't need to keep doubting it. I can have assurance. God is bigger than my doubting heart. He's bigger than that. So, 1 John gets at that question of assurance. Now, I know if you're from other faith backgrounds, it can sound almost arrogant to say, I know for sure that I'm saved. You know, depending on what faith background you're from, you go with the right religion in the right place, and you're going to find people that almost want you to doubt it, or how can you ever know because you haven't done enough. But our grounding is not in what we do. So here's what I'm going to do today. Um, I want to talk about your confidence, your assurance of salvation. The last two weeks I've been talking about how do you get saved. You know, you get saved by faith in Christ. It's not by works. But today I want to talk about how can you be assured that you're saved. That's a little bit different. I'm not talking about how you're saved, but being confident that you're saved. God wants you to have assurance. So, I want to share something that uh, a lot of different scholars have talked about in the book of 1 John. Uh, it might have made, it kind of was made known by uh, Pastor John Stott. And he looked at 1 John as uh, a way of taking, in a sense, a test to see if you are in the faith for confidence. Now, I know my issue with this is using the word test creates all sorts of anxiety in us, doesn't it, you know? You people that hate taking tests, like this is, but I want to share you what John Stott has written about the book of 1 John, and I want to show you what he said about it, and then I want to, I want to make some pastoral remarks about that. So if we can put the, the three tests up, there should be all three there. Um, so here's what Pastor John Stott has done. Um, he has looked throughout the book of 1 John, and he has seen that there are different ways we can be sure that we are saved. There's a doctrinal test. So if you look with me, if you're still in First John, hopefully you stay there. First uh, John 2:23. Go to that. Should be just back a page or two. First John 2:23 through 25 says this: No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. I don't know what the beginning is for you. Again, I don't know the moment of salvation. But whatever you heard in the beginning, that first, those first steps, let that abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 
And this is the promise that He has made to us, eternal life. God has promised eternal life to you. And what you have to do in response is confess the Son, is what it says here. Confess the Son. You say, Jesus is Lord. I mean, Paul says, nobody can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit enables them. You know, you say, Jesus is Lord. I'm confessing with my mouth. This is true. So there's a doctrinal test here. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who died on the cross for you? Do you confess Christ? Because if you do, then you have, verse 25, the promise of eternal life. God's promised it. And this is not a message about eternal security. I, you know, I wasn't going to make this all about eternal security, but I believe in eternal security. I believe that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Right? So this is God's promise to you, and God's a promise keeper. If you believe that Christ has saved you, you have this promise of eternal life. That's the doctrinal test. What do you believe? Then, Stott points out the moral test. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. And I love the way John writes this. I mean, in verse 3 he says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we know we've come to know Him. So, I want to know, have I come to know Jesus? And John says, well, here's how you know that you know Jesus if you keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does, this is verse 4, but doesn't keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in Him. And But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way He, Jesus, walked. I gotta walk like Jesus. I gotta obey Jesus. And as I obey Jesus, I have this confidence that I'm saved. He's transforming. Now, our works don't save us. Our works don't save us. They just make us confident that we've really met Christ. Because we're acting like Him. And then, Stop points out that there's a love test. If you look at chapter 3, 14, probably a page over in your Bibles. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the last one is a social test. It's love. Do you love people? And in particular, John has in mind church people. You look across the room. You love the person across the room. If they had a need, would you step in and help? That's the love test. That goes back to James last week we looked at. If you see a brother and sister in need and you wish them well but don't do any help, don't help them at all. Is that a, is that a real faith? That's a, that's a dead faith, James says. So there's a social test. By this, verse 16, we know love that he laid down his life for us. So I know love because of Jesus. But I have to practice love. I have to practice love. There is a social test going on here. Now, um, I didn't want to spend my whole message on those tests. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I'm one of those people that I'm scrolling through Facebook and I'll see a test. Like, 
how well, how, how good at grammar are you? You know, take the test. And I'm thinking, I'm really good at grammar. I'm real good at that. Ain't nobody as good as me as grammar. So, I take the test. And as I'm scoring, I, you know, I'm answering all these questions and, and I'm getting the, the, um, the anonyms right and the synonyms right and I'm getting the sentence structure right, subject, verb, complement, direct object. I got it all going. And I take that test and then I get my results. I click on the thing. And then it says something very flattering, you know, about how I'm in the top whatever percent. I don't know who put that test together, but I feel so good about myself. But here's the problem. I can't possibly hit submit and, and like put it on Facebook because that looks like I'm bragging, right? So I can't show everybody. Now, sometimes I'll take a test and I'll score really lowly. And, and, and I think I, I think I'm supposed to do better. Like I take one of those like, it's like a Star Wars test, right? You know, I know Star Wars. I'm taking this thing. And, and I'm clicking it, you know, I know who that guy is, I know who that guy is, and, and, and I'm answering all these things. Then there'll be ones that I don't get right, because I haven't read some sort of extra book you're supposed to read. The books, what? I'm not reading those books. I just watch the movies, you know? Um, and so there's all these books, and I don't know the answers to those questions, and it makes me mad, and I'm getting them all wrong. And I get to the end of that, and it's like, no, no, you're like the, and then they, then they rank you. You're like the Jedi in training. You, you got, you got nothing. And I can't share that one because then I feel bad about myself. So test taking is very interesting. Um, and, and maybe you're the kind of person that took tests in school and you had test anxiety, you know, and, and it just, it just kind of, listen, I think every teacher will tell you when you take a test, you need to read the instructions. Kids, you got to read the instructions first. I know you've probably heard that a million times. But if you don't read the instructions... I mean, I had teachers too, you know. You don't put your name at the top, they'll give you a zero. Like, I hated that. I hated that. Um, you got to read the... Put your name at the top. Read the instructions. Now, I'm looking at this test. And I was reading a lot of people this week. And, and there are a lot of scholars, I would say the majority, that say, Oh, yeah. Look at this test. You, you, you can take this test and you can see, you know, do, do I believe in Christ? He died for me. Am I obeying him? Do I love him? But then I read a whole bunch of other people that said, oh, my goodness, you're what are you doing? Because what if you have a week where sin is a really big deal in your life? What then? Like you're going to feel lousy. You're going to feel like you lost your salvation. You're going to feel terrible. Like you can't possibly look at yourself. How am I supposed to understand this? How am I supposed to understand First John when he says, by this we know we've come to know him if we obey his commandments? How am I supposed to figure that out? And this is why it's helpful to read a whole book and not just look at little passages. But read the whole thing. Let me give you some ways to understand the doctrinal test, the moral test, the social test. Because I get the majority of scholars and pastors are saying this is right. But I think there's a certain way to understand this as you read the whole book of 1 John. I want you to have confidence. Okay, here we go. These are the instructions. I've got three instructions to give you about this test. If you're going to have assurance, you've got to read the instructions first. Number one, John is not writing to make you doubt your salvation, but to make you confident of it. Look at John 5.13. Look at John 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is already saying you all have eternal life. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about his his readers. The people that are reading First John originally, he's saying you have eternal life. I just want you to be confident of it. Imagine, if you would, a moment. Let's say your spouse comes home at the end of the day, and, they, and, and your spouse gives you a paper test. And the test says, this is how you know if you're a good wife. Take the test. Or let's say it's a wife that brings it home to the husband. Husband, I want, to, I want you to take this test and then we're going to have a conversation. Now you know at that point, this is going to be bad. There's no way that test can be actually be good. And you're probably going to fail that test. You already know it. You're going to fail that test. Imagine you go to work one day. You they're not married, you know. You're going to work one day, and your boss comes up to you and says, Here, I'd like you to take this anger management test. Now, many of you would say, no, no, you need to take that test. <laughs> you need to take the test. Not me. You got the wrong person. Now, if your boss hands you a test like that, your assumption, I think, is going to be, I've got an anger problem. And if your spouse hands you a, a, a good husband test, you're going to think, she's saying I'm a bad husband. You know what I mean? If there's a little book left on your coffee table, left by your wife, that says, you know, this is what good being good husband's all about. You're not going to assume that you're already a good husband and she's encouraging you with that book. Um, okay. Is John written to make you doubt your salvation? Is John written, are those tests in there to make you say, oh my goodness, I am totally going to fail this. This is not going to go well for me, you know. I, John's calling me out. And John is saying, that's not why I'm writing this book. I'm writing to you that believe in Jesus Christ. You've already passed. I just want you to be confident. Do you hear that? You've passed, but I want you to be confident. That's it. I want you to have assurance. Some of you have probably been in churches where the preacher it feels like they want you to doubt your salvation. You know, like we talk about sin in this church, but I don't want to talk about sin in a way that makes you doubt your salvation. Like, if you do this thing, you should question it, whether you're saved or not. That's not why John wrote First John. He wrote it to people who knew they were saved. In fact, he even says, I think in chapter 2, he says, um, I don't even need to teach you about salvation because you already know it. The Holy Spirit has already taught you. You know, he actually says that. You know, like, you got it. So, when you look at those tests, if you look at it like, I'm doubting, that's not the point. That's not what John wants for you. That's not what God wants for you. Number two. Uh, John is not writing to tell believers to try harder. Instead, he's pointing to the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now check this out. Uh, let's look at chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, 
And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Do you see the beauty of this verse? The moral test. Am I obeying Jesus? Am I walking like Jesus? That can get you down on some days, you know? That can make you doubt everything when you see your sin. But look at what, look at what John says. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. When you obey God's commands, it just shows the Spirit's working on you. It shows the Spirit's activity. You will be, you will find some churches that's kind of like try harder. Do better. Go out there, you know. You, you got a lot of work to do on your, on your life, you know. Your obedience really stinks. But, but John is saying, I'm just trying to point out where the Holy Spirit is working. Did you see when you had that chance to lie at work and you didn't lie? That's the Holy Spirit working in you. You know, you know, so you might say, well, I've lied a gazillion times though. That one time doesn't balance it out. It doesn't balance it out at all. Jesus died for the gazillion times you've lied. But look at how he's transforming you. Look at what the Spirit's doing. Look at how the Spirit's causing you to love. I have one more verse I want you to see. Uh, on this Holy Spirit part. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us the Spirit. Now right before that, I should have backed up a little bit. Let's do verse 7. You get the whole context. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's, there's the social test. If you're not loving people, you, you know, you, you might doubt, but, but you do love people, so you shouldn't doubt. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. So if I love other believers, if I love my enemies, it just shows the Spirit is working in me. It's just the evidence the Holy Spirit is causing me to love love. And I'm just cooperating with that great lover who is God. God is love. And he's working that into my life. I can't take credit for that. He gets credit for that. He's passing the test in me. Holy Spirit's passing that test in me. Okay, one more. One more. Uh, John is not writing to sinless super saints. Yes. Sinless super saints, but to regular Christians. Look at First uh, John 1 8. You, you guys know this one. You could quote this one for me, I bet. First John 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. So if you're trying to pass the moral test and you think that means you're going to be the sinless super saint, no. John says you're going to sin. So so what do you do with that whole thing of when you feel really down about yourself because you sin? 
and you're like, I'm not even thinking about the good stuff I've done. I'm not thinking about the obedience. All I can see is my sin. Here's what I'd say to you. If I was sitting in my office with you talking to you and you're like, I doubt. I doubt that I'm saved. I see my sin. I know that Jesus forgave me, but I just doubt it. I don't see the evidence. I'd say, how about the evidence of going to Jesus and confessing that sin? Isn't that evidence? Isn't that what we're called to do? If you're telling me you're supposed to get to a sinless state of perfection and then you'll be sure that you're saved, you'll never get there. You will never get there. If passing the moral test means no more sin, you'll never get there. Ever. Until you're dead. John is not writing to sinless super saints. And see, I know people, and you know people, who when you're around them, you, you just feel the godliness ooze off of them. You know what I mean? I used to pray with an, with this pastor at the last church I was at, and his prayers, like I felt like I could never pray like that. I could never talk to God like that. And then I realized God didn't want me to talk to him like that. He wanted me to talk to me in my words. You know, Imagine that, my heart talking to God, not using the other guy's words, but using my words. He's not writing to the sinless super saints. And you all know people who you esteem highly, even they sin. Even they need a Savior. But John is writing to regular Christians. I love uh, chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Check this out. Um, John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven and for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, there's different ways to understand like this whole thing. There's children, there's fathers, and there's young men. You could talk chronological age. He's talking to little kids and he's talking to, he's talking to older people and he's talking to young people. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of lean on it kind of like a, I, I see it like a spiritual age thing, you know? There are some fathers, I mean that men and women, I think he's capturing both here, that there are mature saints in the church. He's writing to them. He's also writing to young people. People that are, that is younger in their faith, but they're pursuing growth. They're pursuing God. They're not mature yet, but they're, but they're on the way. And he's also writing to little kids. Because they know Jesus and they've been forgiven. That, that's how I tend to understand that. There's different ways of looking at that. That's how I read it. Um, but it's just, this is for everybody. This is for everybody. Now, I'd like to leave you with a closing illustration that I hope brings this whole thing together. And for this, I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need three volunteers. Should I just call people's names or does someone want to come up? I know nobody wants to come up here, right? Braden, shake your head. Shaking your head, no. Shaking your head, no. Okay. Um, Noel wants to come up. Noel, would you come up here? I'm so glad you volunteered. Noel, because you were first, you get to be Jesus. Okay? And I want you to stand down here. Okay? I want you to stand right here. And I'm going to have you looking like that. Oh, perfect. Like you like, knew what I was going to ask you to do. You're going to look that way. Yeah, you're doing it. Okay? Okay, I need somebody else. Who else wants to come up? Oh, yes, come on up. Yes, yes, yes. Joey. Yes, Joey. Come on up. All right. We want you to be the bad Joey or the good Joey. Bad, good, bad. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm going to have you put you over here, Joey. Okay. 
you're going to be, uh, you're, you're going to look out at everybody and you're going to be unsaved Joey. Just, just for the example, right? You're not really unsaved, but you're going to be unsaved Joey just for this. Now I need one more. Who's the last one? This is going to be really good. Yes, come on up. Yes. Come on up. Miss Stauffer. Okay. Come on up. Okay. Now, you're going to be the Christian in this, okay? So come over here. Now, what are we going to do here, okay? This is you unsaved. This is you, the church, as you're unsaved before you came to Christ. This is Jesus over here. And this is, yeah, thank you. This is the believing you. Now, imagine this to be a a continuum, a, a journey of faith. Where would you put yourself in your journey? In other words, we'll use a big word. Sanctification means you're growing to be more like Jesus. You're becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus. You're not over there anymore. Bad. Okay, sorry. Um, you're not over there anymore. But, but like, where would you put yourself? Well, let's, how about you ask this? Where would you put the Apostle Paul? Like, like, how close is the Apostle Paul to Jesus in his walk of faith, in his sanctification, in his growing more and more like Jesus? Where do you put him? Do you put him over here, like a couple steps away? Do you put him in the middle? Do you put him like way over here? Wait, wait, you gotta come with me. Sorry. You gotta come with me. Do you put him like over here, like really close to Jesus? I mean, I kind of think of the Apostle Paul, like, he, he's gotta be one of the most godly people ever. You know, right? Like, like, that's how I, that's how I look at Paul. Well, let's, for the sake of neutrality, let's put you right in the middle. Okay? Let's put you in the middle. Well, let's put you on this side of it. A little further away from Jesus, okay? Now, you want to take the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. My question is this. How much should I look at myself to know that I'm really saved? You know the moral test and the social test? Do I obey Christ? Do I love other people? How much should I look at me to figure that out? Turn. What I'm saying is the same thing uh, the Scriptures tell us. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm saying the doctrinal test is the top. How do I know? How can I be confident? I'm looking at Jesus. I'm keeping my eyes on Him. Now, I read First John, and occasionally I can look at myself. You can look at yourself now, you know. But... But if I'm, but if I'm trying to walk towards Jesus and I'm just staring at myself all day, look down and try to walk, you know, that, that's not a good thing to do, you know, because you're gonna fall over. You're gonna fall. You wanna fall over? No, no. Okay, okay. Um, you're gonna fall over because if, if I'm walking like this, you know, I'm gonna trip over myself. I keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm becoming more like Him. He died for me. I base my assurance on that. And occasionally I can look at myself and say, you know, how am I doing? How is the Spirit transforming me? Am I talking more like Jesus? Am I acting more like Jesus? Am I being, am I loving like Him? And I can look at that because John tells me to, you know, how do you know that you know? You know that you know because you walk like Jesus walked. And I can look at my walk, but then I gotta look right back at Jesus. I can't take my eyes off Him very long because that's where my assurance is. That's where my assurance is. And I keep my eyes on Him. And occasionally I can look and say, hey, 
I think I do look a little more like my Savior. And then some weeks are really bad and you feel like you took like three steps backwards, you know? Like some weeks are going to feel like that. Like you took three steps backwards. But if I keep looking at Jesus, that's where my assurance lies. You can all have a seat. Thank you. And they do great. Yeah, I mean, they're great. Thank you. The awesome thing is, I could put it like this. I'll use the big word that we used a few weeks ago, justification. God declared me to be righteous. So even as I'm walking towards Jesus, God says, I'm declaring you to be already here in the glorified part. That's justification. Like God saying, you're here. Now I know I'm not there yet, but God is saying, I'm declaring you righteous. I'm declaring it. I'm saying it. You're forgiven. You're saved. I don't count your sins against you. But as I walk, I still sin. But justification says, I'm staring at Jesus. He declared me righteous. That's where my assurance is. And John says, occasionally you can look down at yourself and say, I can see some evidence. I can see some ways that the Holy Spirit's been working on me. And I give glory to God for that. Worship team, come on up. Father, I pray for those that have come in here with doubts and, and, and those that that worry that maybe they're not saved. I pray that you'd help them fix their eyes on Jesus. I know for some people, Satan is going to whisper things in their ear this week that they couldn't possibly be a believer. How could Christ die for someone like that? Look at the, look at the mistakes that are made over and over and over again. Help them keep their eyes on Christ. Help them answer that it's Christ's righteousness, not my own. And I pray even for that grace to see how you're transforming us, the social and the moral part. Help us see how your Holy Spirit is changing us from the inside out. Help us not make that the foundation, though. I pray we don't make that the foundation. Help us keep looking to Jesus. I pray this in His name. Amen.